You're listening to a Monster Kid Podcast. Welcome to Clock Strikes Midnight, a podcast for discussion of weird, fun films and TV shows to watch late at night. This is your host, Jay. So, turn out your lights, draw the shades, wrap up in your favorite blanket by the speaker, and listen for the 12 bells while we bring you tonight's outstanding topic. Welcome to Clock Strikes Midnight. I'm Jay. I'm Mondo. I'm James. And I'm Kelly. And tonight we're talking about 1994's Shallow Grave. Directed by the good Danny Boyle in his first uh, feature film. Starring Christopher Eccleston, Ewan McGregor, and Carrie Fox. And this film is brought to you by our wonderful guest, Kelly. Woohoo! Who we know as a... Uh, fellow monster kid and lover of all things macabre that we all enjoy together. Hello and welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're psyched to be here and talk about the movie. What made you pick this one? Um, this is a movie that, like uh, like many people, I heard, I heard about it on Bravo's Scariest Movie Moments, and it was kind of always on my list, but I couldn't find it until I found it on YouTube recently and got to watch it. And I just thought it was a very interesting movie and a lot different from a lot of the movies I've been watching lately. So uh, that was why it was my pick. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film with fantastic uh, thriller elements, uh, psychological elements, um, artistic elements, uh, beautiful cinematography, and kind of inspired direction. I don't know about you guys, but I was kind of, I didn't realize for myself, I, it's been several years since I've seen it for the first time. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a slick thriller, very well acted, beautifully directed and great cinematography. Mm -hmm. Only when Kelly chose it, did I go back and realize that it was a directed by Danny Boyle and B it was his first feature film for a debut. I think this was pretty auspicious. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it was very impressive. And, and pull together the cast that he did. You know, what's interesting is that at this time, Carrie Fox was really the only one that was, well-known of the cast, I think, right? So she had done a Jane Campion film and was sort of at the head of the indie movement. But Ewan McGregor, this is his first This is his first featured role. Yeah, I thought that was incredible. And his performance is great, considering that this is his first feature film. Undoubtedly, he's outstanding. And Christopher, Christopher Eccleston, I think, had done one other film or two as a featured player. 
And he really knocked this one out of the park. His character arc, well, we'll get into it, but it's, it's pretty impressive where he took it. It was at a time when, I, at least in my opinion, thrillers and especially horror films were kind of going through a down cycle. I've read things that it sort of single-handedly re-established the British thriller. And I was wondering if you guys had any, if you guys had heard anything or read anything along those lines as well. I don't know a ton about the context of what cinema was like around this time, especially in Britain, but it was the most commercially successful film of 95. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when they debuted at Cannes, um, Danny Boyle knew that it was going to be successful because they had to set up three extra screenings to meet demand to people that wanted to see it. Yeah, and that's pretty impressive for a film that was, you know, cost uh, just like, I think it was just over a million pounds. Yeah. Which was, is, their, was their entire budget. Mm-hmm. That's about the equivalent of $2 million today. And um, I'm, I don't know if you read about the um, budget issues that they had while they were making it. And I know $2 million is a lot, but that's not a lot for a movie. Um, right. Most of it went to building the flat set, which cost almost three quarters of the entire budget. And then by the end of it, they were selling off furniture and props to try and buy films just so they could finish the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I think I read that that they were they were literally they shot it on film mm-hmm. celluloid, and they they literally had run out of film stock. Yeah, and uh, the scene where the constable and the detective visit the flatmates uh, for the second time, they literally had torn down half the set and sold it by that point, which I thought was hilarious. They're acting in this little shell of a set. <laughs> <laughs> Because they didn't have the money to to keep the rest of the setup, they had to sell off the furniture and the and the furnishings, which is also a story in and of itself. the The set designer had had its beautiful pastels and sort of interesting color frames, and they had based the whole thing on a painting. Did you guys know that? Yeah, I read that. No, I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, they based the whole set of the apartment um, on a painter. Uh, a, a painting called Hotel Lobby in 1943. It's an oil painting by Edward Hopper. And I, when I read that, I immediately, of course, looked up the painting, and it, it it jumped right out at you. It's almost like you're living in the painting when you rewatch the film. It was really impressive. That's interesting. I noticed. Um, I I did notice. I mean, the color and the use of color. Um, and you know, they didn't stick with one. I mean, it was all pastels, but like. You know, the way, like you said, they use the color to almost frame things. Um, you know, the door would be different from, like, you know, the wall or whatever, like, different shots. It was, it was pretty cool the way they did that, I thought. Um, but I didn't know it was based on a painting. That's really interesting. Yeah, the painting has um, it has a lot of those, like, dark blues and different kinds of blue tones in it, which reminds me hmm. of the bedrooms, mostly. And then they would go to sort of neutral, more earthy colors for the kitchen. And the common rooms sort of had a, a softer um, pastel to them, if you will. And what's interesting is that counters with some other cool shots later in the film where in the second burial uh, scene, they they just put, they blast uh, red backscatter mm-hmm. uh, against uh, Mist and basically the character of David losing his mind and burying two more corpses, which we'll get to, but... The, the use of color in this film is gorgeous, and the use of cinematography to represent positions of power is also kind of cool. 
but I suppose we'll get into that as we go along. That's how Kelly picked it and how I originally watched it. Mondo, how did you become aware of this film? Uh, I had seen it uh, some time ago, I think when I was in college, and because um, I'm a big fan of Danny Boyle's work. I mean, obviously, like uh, he followed this up with Trainspotting, and Trainspotting was the my introduction to him and uh, McGregor. So, you know, when I found out that they had worked together previously, I sought that out. And uh, man, I mean, the two of them together is just like magic to me. Uh, this movie's great. Um, this time around, I bought the Criterion Edition and was able to like watch a bunch of the special features and it was it was just uh i mean just looking back now at how established the both of them are like just seeing the struggles they had with like budget and set and all that stuff and even just like getting the optioning the film and it was it's just uh i don't know man it's really humbling to see what they went through when they made this first film and how good it ended up and yeah it it was a great ride i mean it's just a great ride yeah, how how, mu- how what a great film came out of that struggle. I agree with you, man. I mean, such a low budget. I guess they had planned to sh- the the film is uh, set in Edinburgh, but they decided to shoot in Glasgow because the Glasgow Film Board gave them an extra one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So of that budget, you know, eight hundred or so or seven fifty is from the distribute or rather the uh, production company, and the rest is is from the uh, well from the sale of their set. <laughs> <laughs> and also and also from the the Glasgow film board. Yeah, I agree. For for this is like this is the most pardon the expression, the most bang for your buck I think you can get out of a film. I I completely agree and we'll get to the specific scenes. How about you James, man? My first experience was yesterday and the way I heard about it was through Kelly, you know, recommending it. Um I am a huge huge fan of Danny Boyle. I don't know why I never like dug back to his very first movie, but I think I've seen almost every other movie he's made. There might be one that's slipped by, but um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, man. Um, it, it was a surprise because like I, I didn't realize he'd made this, and then of course you and McGregor and he they go way back. They well, I guess that this is the beginning of it, but they have quite a history with the the movies they've made together. So also, um, Christopher Eccleston. I think I said his name probably probably wrong. Um, <laughs> I knew I recognized him, but I couldn't figure out where from. It, he was um he was in Twenty Eight Days Later, which was kind of interesting. He played the captain, and uh, you know, I I was like, where do I know this guy from? No you know? shit, yeah. I didn't recognize yeah, him from way. that. He's the uh, he's the bad military dude in Manchester, like who puts out the radio signal and it that to offer protection, and it turns out that his men are just looking for girls, and. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other film, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of cool how Boyle goes back and works with these great people again. And and uh, you know, it's interesting. He, I didn't know if you guys knew this. I found this out today doing research. He had a rift with you and McGregor. Really? After they did they did this film, they did Train Spotting, and they did uh, Life Less Ordinary, and that was three in a row. And there was some talk about mcgregor being involved in the beach and he was i don't know if he was pushed out or wasn't offered a role or just assumed he would have a role and didn't get one but it really upset him and i and boyle is the first one to say and i didn't i didn't handle the situation like i should have and uh it took them years to to work together again and i think they decided i think there was something about them 
finding themselves literally alone on a on a flight back from China in first class and finally working things out years later and train spotting two becoming the result. So I, I'm with you guys. I think James put it correct spot on where he said it's uh it's magic when they or maybe that was you Mondo with it's magic when they work together and I'm really happy that they patched things up because if this film is any indication they have a lot to offer together. So at the beginning of the film, we have uh, Alex Law, who's a journalist, David Stevens, who's an accountant. Don't know if you guys knew this, but David, the role of David was offered to Robert Carlyle, who went on to play uh, Begbie in Train Spotting and The Beach and, <laughs> and 28 weeks later <laughs> and Daffy yeah. in the Beach and yeah. yeah, I can't remember his character's name, but he was the lead in 28 weeks later. And then also Juliet Miller, who plays a physician in The Three Are Roommates. And there's this really cool opening circular shot on David's face where he basically says, uh, in so many words, I believe in friends. And if you can't trust your friends, then what? With this sour look on his face. And you can, you can already tell this, this movie could, this movie's going to go south at some point quick because he's not smiling or happy when he says this. Uh, and we're led to believe that something is amiss. I've known rejection. I'm not afraid to declare my feelings. Take trust, for instance, or friendship. These are the important things in life. These are the things that matter, that help you on your way. If you can't trust your friends, well, what then? What then? This could have been any city. They're all the same. And... It comes full circle, no pun intended, at the end of the film. And they're interviewing potential roommates. And I'll, I don't, I'll leave it to you guys to describe the manner in which they go about this. I thought this was a really interesting way to introduce these characters because right off the bat, they're not particularly sympathetic. Like my first note of the whole movie is like, these people are dicks. Why are they doing this? To <laughs> um, yeah, so the opening scene is them interviewing prospective roommates, and they are nice and charming at first, but then like they openly mock some of them to their faces. They pretend to be serious, but say things that they know are really kind of poking at sensitive things that these people have. Like I think they there's like a like a girl that's implied she's very religious, and they like make fun of her for that and like talk about atheism if I remember correctly, and. Um, like, yeah, Eccleston says, uh, David says, what would you do right now if I told you I was the Antichrist? <laughs> like, like, what kind of question is that to ask to a religious woman? You know what I mean? Right. It's, they, use that, they use that as a good, uh, you, you, get a, you don't get much like personality from, well, you get plenty of personality from the three leads, but you don't really get to know them. And this is the only way that you get to know them uh, right off the bat. And, and you really only do that in a sense where you see them working with each other. Like you get the sense that they're all friends and they're all having a, a blast. It looks like they're kind of maybe just looking for a roommate that could hold their own and, and join in. But, but that's a pretty, pretty big, uh, strong impression <laughs> to, for someone to run into or walk into for the first time. Um, but you also see that like, uh, McGregor's definitely like, I mean, with the Antichrist uh, question, he's just he's just definitely one of those in-your-face type of people. 
um, that people can either love or hate. Um, he actually, uh, in behind the scenes, he describes his character as unlikable, which I was like, oh, because I liked him. Right. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, was saying, I agree with him because I, I, yeah. Um, oh, I, I put later on, Ewan McGregor is a drunk is a bit much. And then I put Cameron seems to agree. <laughs> nice. Cameron's Revenge, right. Shallow Grave 2, Shallower Grave. Honestly, like, yeah. were any of you bummed when that happened? I wasn't. I was like, honestly, you had it coming. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. That, yeah, that's yeah. Ex- in yeah. fact, that's the exact phrase that went through my mind. Well, he had it coming. Yeah. Right. And I'm surprised he wasn't hurt worse because, you know, I mean, basically they are, I wrote that they, they're, they're snide, aloof, snobbish, and even sadistic. And the last scene is basically being elitist with Cameron, telling him that he's a loser, and why would they ever consider his presence in their flat? Spacious, bright, well-appointed, all that sort of stuff. All that sort of crap. Well, yes. Yes, so tell me, Cameron, just tell me, because I'd like to know, what on earth could make you think we'd want to share a flat like this with someone like you? I mean, my first impressions, and they're rarely wrong, is that you have none of the qualities we normally seek from a prospective flatmate. Talking here about things like Presence, charisma, style and charm. And I don't think we're asking too much. I don't think we're being unreasonable. Take David here, for instance. A chartered accountant, he may be, but at least he tries hard. Trouble is, I just don't think you're trying. And then there's this... What's kind of cool during the whole thing, I noticed, was that the camera angles, when they were looking at the... When the camera was focused on the interviewees and the applicants, the camera was, was above looking down and on a wide field. And usually they were in the center of the sofa by themselves. And then when would they swing back to the three roommates who were snobbishly interviewing, the camera was from a down, uh, from a down to up angle and the three were huddled together and they looked kind of larger than life. And I think that sort of, the, basically that underpins the whole theme of power, who has it, and, and its transfer and so forth. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing that I saw was that there's a, there's a huge example of that right at the end of the scene. I promised to shut up, guys, but I had to get this off my chest. There's a huge example at the end of the scene where Alex goes to the railing right as uh, Cameron winds up at the bottom. And he looks down to him and he says, good luck. And it's, it's directly from above. And the implication is uh, we have the power. You're, you're at the very bottom of the pyramid the biggest loser and another thing and maybe i'm reading into it but the eye or rather the skylight overhead looked a little bit like a gigantic eyeball glancing from the sky implying that although alex thinks he's at the top of the pyramid he is not in control like he thinks he is i don't know that kind of struck me on a rewatch not on the first watch i must admit oh i think that i think you're dead on and i think that was probably intentional power is conveyed through shots very blatantly and especially with that eye in the stairwell a lot yeah and he uses the cinematographer whose name is brian tufano uh, and f- what you know what's interesting is this man doesn't seem to have any other credits um and i thought his did, use uh, of didn't both he do quadrophenia he did a couple of things. Well, you you would know. <laughs> I did. I actually watched that today just to see what it was like. Um, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Let me find. Yeah, but he uses, um, while you look for it, he uses color, camera angle, and a mixture of 
wide shots, mid shots, and close-ups from different angles mm -hmm. to not only build suspense, but to show perspective, at least in this film, I believe, of shifting power. And we'll just, I'll pepper the, the moments in where I saw it during the film. But I thought it was really cool filmmaking. And it sort of gets you right, it, I don't know about you guys, but it bopped me right over the head from the beginning of the film with that, with basically Alex taunting from five stories up around a circular uh, staircase, their, their applicant. By the way, before we get off the applicant um, part, uh, there was a, there's a very quick cut scene, and I saw this in research, that Ewan McGregor's mother was in there as one of the applicants. <laughs> and I don't know how she got the job, unless it was just outright nepotism. They go to play squash together. Uh, it looks like they're relatively well off. And on the car ride back, there we get a little better of a sense of their characters. Alex is kind of a wise guy. David is a little bit more straight-laced. And uh, Juliet is biding her time between the two. And there's a really interesting piece of information that I caught the second time around in the car. Did you guys sense that there was a relationship or a tryst that actually had happened between David and Juliet. I don't remember. Alex. Yeah, Alex sort of gives them a bit of a hard time and they both sort of get sheepishly embarrassed about it. And he, in his brash way, says, I'm just trying to, you know, indicate that it might have been some sordid affair. Like something, I can't remember exactly the words that he used. That's right, but I do remember that, yeah. Discussion. I thought you'd stop going. Yeah, well, he had too many of those urges. You of all people should know about that. God, you two are sensitive. All I'm doing is implying some kind of ugly, sordid sexual liaison. Well, I'd be proud of that sort of thing. Maybe you should go, Alex. You'll meet someone wonderful. For my life. I just... Yeah, and it, it, if you, it's one of those things where if you turn away for a second, you miss it. But that comes into play later. So they're still looking for their roommate, and along comes a gentleman named Hugo. For some reason, he catches Juliet home alone. Uh, and he is a sophisticated, well-dressed, a little bit older, cash-up-front type. Uh, seems to be relatively swab. I, did you guys pick up sexual tension between the two? Absolutely. Yep. And I remember thinking that was a little strange because there is an age difference. And he's he has like a suaveness about him, but like it's not... I wouldn't say it's blatant. Like, I, I was a little bit surprised that she kind of... Um, liked him so much immediately i wasn't sure why yeah and and by the way she also seems to have a slew of lovelorn boyfriends who she doesn't have any contact with or refuses to call back that's right yes um as all of this is happening the the three of them are constantly getting calls from like a you know we're supposed to infer that it's a scorned ex-lover that just constantly calls for Juliet. yeah and writes letters and Alex cheekily will open the letters and read them out loud and say, this is trash. I would never sign my name to this. You know, he's just <laughs> giving her bollocks about the whole thing. And I think there is more than one because he also gets confused at one point and says, do you know anyone who's Swedish? Because he thinks it's a Swedish guy calling her. So she's I, the implication is she's a heartbreaker. Did you guys get that feeling from it? Definitely. Yeah. A lot of or, boyfriends. Or she was popular. Something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or at least know, a lot of people. The, by the end yeah. of the movie, I think it was, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think maybe the first time I watched it, I was caught off guard by her arc in the movie. But second viewing, I'm just like putting everything from the beginning to the end in place. Like, I mean... Yeah, she's a heartbreaker. Uh, maybe she didn't even like the roommate. She was just so used to, like, you, I don't know, trying to, like, power play him, you know? They, they just kept going back and forth, and that, that maybe she, she liked him because he gave that back to her. I don't know if it was legit sexual tension or just that, you know, they were just doing that weird power play that people do. And she may have been doing that with a bunch of her previous boyfriends. Like, you know, she just used them for something and then dropped them when she got what she needed and but they couldn't let go i don't know because uh because i mean i mean like the first time i watched it it's just like a slap in the face i didn't see it coming at all and i don't even want to say it yet because we're not even there but (laughs) (laughs) but the second time i'm just like oh man it almost kind of makes sense if i you know paid attention to the clues (laughs) yeah well it's interesting he you're right i think they might it almost as if they're playing some kind of a game and it has sexual overtones, but it's it's a power play. And he enjoys it, and she enjoys it. And I think that's why she winds up thinking that he would be a cool roommate. He says, she asks, he says, I'm a writer. And she says, well, what are you writing? And he says, what's your novel about? He says, it's about a priest who dies. And then she then later, she says something, I can't remember, not non-committal. And he says, well, maybe he doesn't die. You know, he's like, chain, he's he's toying with her, and she's toying right back. And then they go and look at the, uh, at that the portrait in the hallway which is a very clever uh, scene with with some pretty sec- sexual power undertones i thought it was well done well acted oh what's it about it's actually about a priest who dies i see yeah maybe you're right maybe i should change it no, no no i think you're right i mean who wants to read another story about dead priest in fact it's about another guy, he's not a priest. And he lives, he doesn't die. <laughs> See, it's better already. Writing seems easy. Oh, yeah, it's a breeze, no problem. So he leaves, and uh, Juliet, uh, while Alex is reading, and th- the other thing is that Juliet has this funny moment with Alex, a few funny moments with Alex, but he refuses to give her the letter uh, while she's about to get into the shower, and she tries a few times half-heartedly, but winds up, uh, just basically walking out half naked and grabbing the letter from him and going back into the shower as, uh, again, as sort of a, I sort of saw that as a bit of a, a power move because he's basically dumbstruck by it. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that'll shut him up. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he, you know, he, he has to compose himself. And that's the funny thing about Alex in this, in this film. He doesn't really shut up later on. She says, do you ever stop? And he says, no, <laughs> just straight, at least straight he's up. honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's the he's the most consistent. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Although he does go through a cool arc, which we can talk about later. So Hugo doesn't last long. The roommates decide that they haven't seen him for a while. Interesting exchange where Juliet says to Alex while he's watching television, "Have you seen Hugo?" And he says, "No. What channel is he on?" Smart ass. <laughs> oh, you know what? I actually, I didn't get that watching the movie, but I just got it now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just smart ass. And, uh, but it's funny and, and it makes him likable in that sort of sneery way. The three, then David is sort of noncommittal and going back and forth to work. 
But he finally says, no, I haven't seen him either. So they break into his room because the key, because it's been locked from the inside. They find him dead. But that's, that's, (laughs) they find him dead and naked and apparently had some kind of connection, had a big secret, and they find that he has killed himself. At least they think he's killed himself. Did he kill himself, guys? Well, he overdosed. I don't know if it's hard to say whether it was intentional or not, but he had, it looked like he had vomit on his, on his face, didn't it? Like, didn't he like probably just... I don't know, pass out and choke on his vomit or something. Yeah, fully, fully, uh, fully passed out for sure. And there was something I didn't know if that was just dried spittle or what it was. But he's he's dead. That was good job on the makeup crew right there because he definitely looks like a corpse. And Alex throttles through the, through his belongings, much to the dismay of the others, and finds drug paraphernalia as well as a huge suitcase full of cash. That was well shot, too, because every time they showed the cash, it just looked it looked bigger every time they shot it from a different <laughs> angle. Yeah. Ev- the, the amount. <laughs> every time I saw it, I just kept like thinking, there's no way that suitcase can hold all of that. That's not possible. Exactly. And also, what's funny is that she's Juliet's uh, has decided to to call the police just prior. She's almost about to connect to the police to report the dead body when. Alex presents her with this open case of cash and change of scene. They, they plop it on the uh, kitchen table and they have a discussion. And I'm really curious to know what you guys thought of this discussion, because it was, I have some definite thoughts about what was going on with it. I think it highlights each of their personalities and their morality kind of alignment. Exactly. Because Alex is all for keeping it. Uh, Christopher Eccleston is our straight guy and he wants to do the right thing and call the police. And then Juliet, interestingly, she doesn't say that like it's wrong. She says like, I can't remember the exact word she uses, but like it's implausible or like it's not realistic for us to be able to keep this. So we need to just turn it in. Yeah. She says it's infeasible. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I, that word struck me because this seemed like the, well, first of all, I spent way too much time thinking about this, guys. The initials on the suitcase are LCW. Hmm. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I would assume they just kind of like bought it at a thrift store or something. <laughs> I kept I kept looking for some cryptic meaning. Well, what it is, is it, it's not Hugo's suitcase. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that'll come into play in just a few minutes for sure. But yeah, this seemed like a classic interplay, uh, Freudian interplay, right? You have the id, who is Alex, who is like all for just immediate gratification. Keep it, spend it, dispose of the body. This is ours. We stumbled into it. it that's, and then you have the superego, played by David in this moment, who's saying, no, that's, that's not the right thing to do. And then you have Juliet, a bit of the balance between the two, saying, well, it might not be the right thing to do, but I would consider it, but we can't do it because it's not practical. And that's an interesting triumvirate that that shifts and changes as the movie goes on. Well, it's almost like what uh, Alec is like straight up criminal, like he wants to keep it. He doesn't care. And then uh, David's, you know, the, you know, the law abiding, you know, and uh, so... Um, Juliet takes like, well, 
I'd keep it if I know I wouldn't get caught kind of like stance, you know, which is, uh, I mean, I don't know. I probably the more, most realistic of the three of them maybe, but (laughs) it's just a funny, uh, it's just a weird stance to take, but you know, the other two stances are pretty, uh, opposite sides of the spectrum. So, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, the ego is supposed to supposedly be at the forefront of, of most of our psychology. And so it kind of is interesting, not only that they had these three, I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but they had all three of these, uh, but, you know, Freudian characters, but also they had the ego played by the woman, which gave it sort of a gender overtone as well. It was just a really kind of a cool setup. And they didn't make the, the obviously cliched point of putting her in the middle of the two male characters. They put her uh, sort of third, if you will to sort of be the final judge in that particular case. Mm -hmm. They do a slow pull out from the rotting corpse, which they just left on the bed wrapped in a blanket while they think it over and they go about their business, right? Alex goes to the office. David goes to the, and he works as a magazine article writer, I think as a reporter and uh, Juliet goes to the hospital and David goes to the work as goes to work as an accountant and it's funny, they intercut their very boring day with a long, slow uh, shot over the corpse that then starts to pull away. And I could almost like feel all humanity vaporizing as it got farther and farther and farther away from Hugo's corpse. And they decide to do it. So David crumbles. And the next shot is basically the trio shopping for tools at the... The Scottish version of Home Depot. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying scene. This it trips the... me out that they waited till the they basically waited till the co- the corpse was like rotting and smelling to like do anything about it. Like they were really just biding their time because they didn't want to like make a decision. And then they're like, okay, well now it's too late. The decision's made for us. And and Alex is just like, well, I know how to dispose of a body, so let's get to work. I was like, wow. Like that but, is they made it look like so easy to make that decision. Yeah. But not, not only did they wait easy. to handle the body, they also waited to even like have the discussion of how it was gonna be handled until they were in the department store, until they were like in the Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. You know, picking up the Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> that was pretty yeah. bold of them to just be they're pretty much walking around like not so covertly talking about why they need these tools to like dispose of this body it's ridiculous and for me it was the first moment when i started to dislike you and mcgregor's character a little bit because up until this point like he's an asshole but he's very charismatic and he's very good at making you like him despite his bad behavior but this moment where he's like almost kind of gleefully like bouncing around the store like picking up a saw picking up a sledgehammer like we need this we gotta bash out the teeth and you're like wait is this guy a psychopath like, yeah right. yeah cheekily methodically saying all right well we're gonna the, how do they identify bodies well by the hands and the feet so we'll cut those off the teeth will simply remove like it's all matter of fact it's almost gleeful and he's he's bouncing along like some you know some devil he's he's happy to be there good let's talk about disposal now we have to make that body unidentifiable and burning dumping at sea and straightforward burial are all flawed either by fingerprints or more commonly by dental records. This I have learned. Now, what I suggest is that we bury him out in the forest, but first of all, we remove his hands and his feet, which we incinerate, and his teeth, which we just remove. It's as simple as that. David. (laughs) 
I've always wondered what these were for. No. There's a really interesting shot at the very last shot is a foreshadowing shot. Uh, basically, Juliet pushes the cart. Alex follows her, and the only one in the frame is David, who s stares down at his hand, and the only thing he has in his hand is the hammer. And he slowly and reluctantly follows them to the checkout. Now, that was kind of a cool foreshadowing, which we'll get to a little bit later. They go out and into the woods with the body. How they get that body down the stairs without their neighbors noticing, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, they were loud as crap, too. Yeah, <laughs> I was expecting them to drop that body. Yeah. And they're doing every cliche that you're not supposed to do in a thriller. They're, shh, quiet! <laughs> They'll hear us! <laughs> like, rustling that plastic, like, it's not yeah. super loud. <laughs> exactly. They somehow get it down. And what's interesting is they, they take it to the van, and only then do they realize or start to talk about the fact that one of them is going to have to do the deed of dismembering this corpse. And David offers, I can't do it. And then Juliet, in the end, finally says the same thing, I can't do it. And Alex comes up with the idea of drawing straws, which is a really cool shot. They, they all agree to draw straws, and they do it kind of almost with the light of justice <laughs> on, the, on the hand delivering the straws, right? But it's, it's in the headlight of their Mini Cooper, or their van, rather, that they took the body out with. But I thought that was kind of cool. It was almost like, you know, the, the great spirit or the morality or whatever you want to call it. It was sort of, it's like, I see you. I see what you're doing. Juliet draws a long straw, and then it comes down to David, who is about to pull one, and he decides to pull the other and pulls the short straw. And of all the people, I don't know about you guys, but of all, all three of them, I was hoping, I mean, this is beautiful writing. I'm brilliant writing because I, he was the one I was hoping would not get that job Yep. of the three. This time around, I was looking, I was looking at a McGregor's face to see, like, did he, like, give him any kind of, you know, tell, like, maybe you shouldn't pick that one, go for the other one. I was looking, I was looking so hard, but I was like, nope, it was just, just bad luck and chance, man. <laughs> yeah. But I kept thinking, Juliet, you've had experiences with corpses before. I mean, you just step up. Yeah. You know, if, if you're really going to do this, they, everybody, basically, David almost immediately says, I can't do it. And Alex scolds him and he winds up doing it in a just this is this is less with more or rather more with less i should say where they they've dug a shallow grave and they don't show the corpse they just have the two actors working feverishly to remove the hands and feet of this would-be corpse eccleston is gagging alex uh, played by mcgregor is just wiped out and Eccleston is getting into it then and drooling. And it was just it was just as brutal as you think it should be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I thought I thought they sold it really well. Not sh you know, they they didn't have to show all the gory details. You know, the acting carried it really well. Um, one thing I wanted to say uh, <laughs> when uh, when they were having the discussion over who was going to you know dismember the body. Uh, Alex says to Juliet, uh, "But you're a doctor. You'll ki you kill people every day." I, don't know, I thought that was that was a great line. That was really really good writing. I thought. Who's going to do it? Well, I thought we all were. I don't think I can. But Juliet, you're a doctor. You kill people every day. It's different. I still don't want to. I know you tell me. It's definitely a classic. I, that's one of the reasons I think they call this a, dar a, a black comedy. I didn't see that many. I didn't see enough comedic moments in this to label it, to label it myself a black comedy. 
I didn't find it very I, I think comedic. It was pe- at I think all. it was peppered in throughout, but it wasn't it wasn't heavy at any time. Yeah, I mean like right. yeah, like, like that, most of the comedy comes maybe, um most of the comedy comes from Ewan McGregor and no one else really does anything funny, so Yeah, if if other characters had contributed to the com- comedy, it would probably I'd I'd vouch for it being a comedy, but I think more or less it's just it just comes down to McGregor being the comedic relief. Right. And also there's some situational stuff, um, like when uh he's being an ass at that party and then it comes back to bite him, you know, uh in the in the bathroom stall. You know, like that that could kind of be conceived as like a super dark comedy, maybe, you know. Yeah. It has to have comedic moments or else the whole thing will just it'll it'll feel like a like you know, like a gloom bomb. Right. And there are movie there are movies like that too, and I enjoy a few of them. I'm trying to think of one example off the top of my head. I don't think movies like Heredity have much humor in them. That was the first one that came to mind. But I think it sort of serves to balance things out a little bit better. And in this, it was certainly the case in this film. They so they dispose of the corpse in a shallow grave. Uh, they remove the teeth and bash in his head and face to the point where he's unrecognizable, uh, brutally so. Shortly thereafter, they go to a party held by presumably Juliet's ward at the hospital for for little kids, and Alex is drunk and being an a-hole. He goes out and dances with her while David sort of sits nervously at the table, clearly ruminating over what he's done. And he's Alex is drunk, and he falls on his back. And in an interestingly sexual exchange, she Juliet walks over to him and puts the sole of her foot over his mouth. And he smiles and basically uh, seductively kisses her ankle, to which she smiles at him and walks away. And again, here's the extraordinary... I mean, this is extreme camera work, right? He's basically supplicating, and he's, at, he's under her dress. Yeah. And she's, she's stepping on him like an insect, and he's kissing her foot. I mean, and she's towering over him from the shot below. And if there, if there was, ever was an obvious sort of snapshot of who had the power in that relationship at the moment that was very clear and effective and david in the meantime is having struggling to the point where when uh, he still has a little bit of humanity but he cracks when one of juliet's co-workers comes over to ask her to dance i wish i could do that whole monologue for you guys because it's brilliant and i have to be honest i'm still scared of christopher eccleston because this is where it started that monologue. I mean, did that? Did you guys have a similar response? Because man, oh yeah, it's well, terrifying. He, he, throughout the party, he's trying to tell him like he wants to. He wants to talk to him about something. He's he's trying to you know get back on track with things and be continuing. He's continuing to attempt to be the straight man, but I mean, he's already broken at that point. And when that exchange happens, oh man, like it hurt because you know he's broken now. Like you know he's that he's just that messed him up what he had to do and uh and then it hurts again because the way that alec and juliet react they think it's funny because they're just they're just wanting to just trying to have a good time and they're just like wow that was awesome and i was just like no oh man <laughs> like you guys don't see what's coming but that was bad like yeah they egg him on right yeah they, they definitely give him trouble I, I feel like from the very beginning of the just the conversation about taking the money and like you know trying to dispose of the body he was the only one that was really approaching it from a realistic standpoint of you know uh maybe we don't want to do this you know i mean there's gonna be consequences to these actions and i feel like 
Alex was totally, like, you know, I know we already discussed it kind of, but like Alex was totally gung ho. He's like, no, we're going to, you know, Greed had already taken him over. He was, he, he was all the way in. And, you know, Juliet was kind of back and forth playing the room, you know. Um, but I, I feel like he, he consistently was always trying to handle the situation, I don't know, almost like an attorney or like someone that's like very, um, you know, has a to-do list, very organized individual. Like, let's, let's, let's actually take a look at this and see what we're doing and how we can approach this to better our situation. And all they're wanting to do at that point is just screw off, drink, spend the money, you know. Yeah, he's the only one of them that actually gives any thought to consequences. Yeah, and it's all to Kelly's point. It's almost like an extreme uh, accounting, and he is an accountant, right? Right. So, so he they they don't they don't want to take any responsibility for what happens afterwards. And he, I think that's one of the reasons he cracks because he's basically taking responsibility and accounting for everything. Yes. So he basically cracks and and tells this man off in a very menacing way. Stay the hell away from my girlfriend, which is interesting choice of words as well. Because to this point, we don't know if he's playing or if he actually he's cracked and he believes that Juliet is now his girlfriend. But when the man walks away, looks he, he immediately shrinks back to his former self and looks at his roommate and says, "That was stressful. I found that quite stressful. I'm quite stressed, <laughs> you know." And you 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 and your heart melts because you're like, like I, this is the great acting of this of Christopher Eccleston is that he made me afraid of him and then feel empathy for him in the span of 30 seconds. And I, everything I've seen him in since then, I have that little sense of malice because of that's the first thing I ever saw him in. What I wanted to say was this. Aha, the divine Juliet. Long time no see. Brian. Would you care to dance? Hold on. Who do you think you are? What? Who do you think you are? You interrupted us. Well, I'm Brian McKinley. And who are you? Well, Brian McKinley, if you want to talk to my girlfriend, you talk to me first. If you want to dance with me, you apply in writing three weeks in advance, or you're going to end up inside a fucking bin bag. You didn't apply, so you don't dance. Do you think you could be a little more forceful next time? I'm sorry. No, no, I think he got the message. That was quite stressful. I found that quite stressful. Yeah, but you were good. He was really good fucking... You know how sometimes an actor will, you'll never forget that, that first time you saw them? Yeah, this was that moment for me and him. <laughs> but before we leave the party, Cameron's revenge. Kelly, you want to you wanna tell us about Cameron's revenge? Um, so Cameron is a, a par- apparently on the catering staff or somehow working at the venue where this party is happening. Um, Alex recognizes him and beckons him over to the table. And then because he likes to fuck with people, he just immediately says, like, oh, no, you're not him. Like, go away. And um, then later on, Alex goes to the bathroom and we see Cameron come in with some friends. Am I right about that? Yeah, they look like uh, friends or co-workers. Yeah. Right. And then they just go beat the shit out of Ewan McGregor in the bathroom stall. And this is another great example where you get the high. The, it's shot from a very high angle looking down at Alex. And, you know. That's a great point. I, I, you're right. When he goes into the stall, the the camera creeps up and over. I mean, it doesn't show him peeing or anything, but it it sort of shows him from behind and above, as if there's a there's a, he's literally about something's about to come down on him, and it was. Uh, and when they turn, you're right. When they turn around and show uh, Cameron, it, he he's shot from below again with these two flanking goons 
behind him just in case Alex tries to run. I, I find Alex's response perfectly in character where he realizes, he probably realizes he's about to get trounced, but he still smiles and says something like, Cameron, what are you doing here? Something like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, knew full, I thought he knew full well he was about to get the snot kicked out of him. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I I think he's the kind of person that when when that's about to happen, he's still going to be a sarcastic ass and and just dish it up as much as he can. Well, what difference yeah. is it going to make at that point? You know, <laughs> exactly. He's not going to change or beg. He's still going to get a licking. Right. So the next day, Juliet's attending to him, and they to make him feel better. And apparently, because she has no qualms about it, they take a shopping trip. They come back with. And do some of the weirdest things and have some of the strangest purchased items. Hey, Does somebody hey, want to somebody want to roll with don't that? Don't kink shame Jay. Don't kink shame. If he wants to dress up and do what he whatever in the hell that was, let him do it. That was the least well, please, alarming so, thing to me. <laughs> Does somebody want? Of course, yeah, you're right. I guess they'd all been out like d- dismembering corpses. So this is right. pretty tame. In, uh, but does somebody want to describe that scene? Because I don't even know how to set that scene. It's yeah. a very interesting sequence of events. It's like weirdly chaotic. Like um, yeah. we kind of we cut immediately to like it's um, the home video that they've taken of Alex. He's saying some weird monologue. I don't know if it's a reference to something or if he's just spitballing. Um, but like they've bought a like they bought a video camera. They've apparent looks like they bought a new TV. I found it very strange that they bought children's toys. I don't know why that was on the list. They yeah. buy like a like a human-sized gorilla and then that baby doll that they show a few times that like makes the giggling noises. It's terrifying. Yeah. That's even scarier than clowns. Why? I don't get it. <laughs> it's like a crawling baby, a, an automated crawling baby with a troll head. Mhm. And and it's crazy demonic sneer it's kind of like almost and looks keep, like a cabbage patch kid or something yeah yeah and it and it makes this freaky giggle yep and they keep they keep cutting back to it i wrote down cross-dressing this is just stream of consciousness cross-dressing glitter pants creepy crawly baby bow and arrow dancing camera on remote control car goofing in the tub and giggling creepily. Yeah. Um, that so, was my list of stream, yeah. Yeah, and that is exactly... I think you hit all the important things, actually. <laughs> um, we see the Juliet and Alex in their main room. Um, Alex is wearing lipstick and earrings and a lovely sequin dress. Um, and they are just kind of... Which he's ruining because he's rolling around on the floor in it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently they're just kind of they're drinking and hanging out and kind of reveling in their earnings and it, it's actually kind of a lighthearted, chaotic and ridiculous scene of course David comes home and this makes him even more paranoid and it starts down a road that he does not return from where he becomes quite antisocial and chastises them and this is a really cool exchange of lines where he says um, what did this cost us I, and I think Alex says, well, we, I, don't, I don't remember how much we paid for it. And he says again, what did this cost us? And she says, well, it cost 500 pounds. And he said, no, you don't know what this costs us yet because we don't know what's going on with that money. And he's really upset with them. And it put kind of, this is where he starts to, if he didn't already at the party, this is where he starts to really crack. 
And I think this is also where he he senses David senses a power shift uh, of the two on one. And this is another theme that when I wrap up later, I'll get back into, which is it's a it's a the whole film is full of this power of the triangle or the lack thereof of one of the points. And uh, so David is, of course, he is an accountant, so he's trying to account for everything. And I, I don't know if you guys caught this. They're having dinner together and Alex and Juliet are trying to engage him by making him dinner. And he says they, he sits back and they're having a conversation. Alex still pushing his narrative of we have to spend the, these dollars and Juliet's kind of going along with it. And he says, it's my money. I earned it. And to which David replies, yeah, but you didn't cut his hands and feet off. Did you? And Alex immediately shuts up. And then Almost literally, guys, at the halfway point of the movie, I'm looking for the point of no return in script structure here. Almost halfway, exactly halfway through, David kind of puts his fork down, looks up and says, this tastes different. And you realize something as primal and basic as the sense of taste has changed. His whole life has changed. This whole situation has changed and nothing is going back to the way it was. Secure it. What, you want to put it in a bank? You don't want to put it in a bank, do you? What, do you want to bury it? Is that it? Oh, don't say the point in that. It's stupid. Of course it's stupid. Look, we did what we did. We took the money. It was a material calculation. What's the point if it's underground in some funny bank in some funny place? If you can't have it, if you can't spend it, then what use is it? None. It's all for nothing if you do that. Now, I didn't get into this for nothing so that I could have nothing. Yeah, and you didn't saw his feet off. It's different. Did that, guys, did that resonate with you guys, or was that more of like just, it was subtle. It was a subtle moment. I thought it was very powerful. Um, I mean, it, yeah, I I noticed it right away. I made tons of notes about it. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it, it, it had nothing to do with the food, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it had to do yeah. everything with his perspective and, you know, the, the scenario they're going through and just... You know, I, he was against it to begin with, but now the whole thing just, I think he sees it even from another angle altogether. And yeah, it tastes different. I mean, I, I don't know. I, great script writing. Uh, I was looking up to see who wrote this. Uh, uh, was it John Hodge? Uh, yeah, the mm-hmm. script was, I, I really liked the script. A lot of little funny moments and then like moments like this that with dialogue, just, th- you know, three words, it does so much. It tastes different, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And you can tell on his face that nothing will be the same right, ever yeah. again for any, for any of them. I mean, I think it's more perfect. It sounds like such a simple line, but it ha- it resonates almost like a harmonic on so many levels and ripples out through their whole, all of three of those lives. But I thought that was kind of cool. David then becomes even more odd. By the way, the doctor, uh, rather the author is a physician. Did yeah. you guys know that? Um, I was, did you see, did you hear that quote from him about being like a physician and how that affected his script writing? No. Doctors get so much life passing in front of them, so much drama, so much horror and tragedy, that they somehow have to maintain a detachment, and the result can sometimes be a darkly comic story. Which, if you take that in the context of this story, is very interesting. I must not be as nearly as creative as, tr- creative as this guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've seen some dark things, but I've never I've never been able to come up with a story like this. And do you guys know off off the top of your head if has he done anything else? Um or did he go back to practice? Uh, yeah, he's done he's done quite a bit actually. Um I just Googled him here. Uh he did train spotting, he did the beach. I mean, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. He did um Oh, I didn't know that. Train- he wrote those scripts? That's what it says right here, yeah. Uh yeah, and then um he did a movie that Danny Boyle made called Trans, um, and then uh, T2 Train Spotting. So he's done quite a bit with Danny Boyle, actually. Nice. Yeah, that's quite a resume, man. If I could, if I could uh, bring attention to one other thing in that dinner scene, I want to point out that like Alex, Alex does something that really just like stood out to me, where he he keeps commenting on uh, David's eating. Like he's like, "You're not eating enough. You're not eating as much as you used to." And I was like, that's not something that, I, well, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but that's not something that guys typically pay attention to when, <laughs> and uh, so I, I took that as, um, I took that as I was like, oh, he really cares about David. Like he actually cares about his friend. And, you know, we know that they know how to have a fun time together, but there's not very much, there's not very many caring moments between two or the three of them you know like it, we don't we don't get to see that very much so that was one of the you know in in uh in alex's roller coaster journey of we like him we don't like him like that was one of the ones that was like it brought me back i was like all right you're cool. yeah <laughs> he's still human this is why i love movies so much and then just discussing them because like i noticed that line as well but i saw it completely different um i thought it was more uh ewan mcgregor's character just like trying to make sure that uh, that David was just going to keep doing what he's always done, so they keep getting the results, and they, you know, he's not going to like break. Like he was, I, I, I saw it as more of him being um, concerned that there was going to be a serious break, um, as already indicated, kind of by the two conversations that took place beforehand, both at the dinner party and um, or whatever that event was, and then also uh, just previously when he broke in and was, you know, talking about them spending the money like fools. Um, I thought he was just trying to like forecast. Or, or maybe trying to keep the control over the situation of you need to eat more. This is how you always have done it, and we need to keep things normal. Maybe I'm overthinking it, or I don't know. Either way, it's very interesting to see another person's perspective on it, and uh, you know, open it up a little bit more like that. Um, I think you could definitely make an argument either way. Um, right. You, no. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I see it either way. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I, funny enough, I had kind of a I had a bit of a hybrid opinion of that that moment. I thought that he that. Alex was checking in with David both because he's his friend, but also because he and Juliet are worried that David's going to crack and they have a large fortune at stake. So not only is his friendship at risk, but also in theory, this massive hall that they're about to take down. So he's, he's looking after his health with ulterior motives. And now that I've given my take on it, I think we have to hear from Kelly, man, now because everybody's had a thought on this now. <laughs> I actually missed that part. So, um, and that's why I think it could go either way. I know. Uh, um, I don't know. That's one of the things that I may think Alex makes Alex a good character is that you could argue it either way. Like it could be kind of a, perf- yeah. a performative check-in, but it could be genuine. Like, like with people like Alex, a lot of times that kind of bravado and that charisma can become a mask and you forget that there is a person underneath that has cares for his friends. And mm-hmm. I think by the end with his arc, you can see that, that he definitely has the capacity for that. So um, I think it's interesting. It could go either way. Yeah. And it 
must be said that the three actors are show their chops in these moments amongst the three of them because no as charismatic like you said as they as each one is none of them truly outshine the other and that says a lot to the gravitas of each particular actor and and the way that they were directed but he david loses basically starts to crack gets very paranoid takes the case upstairs and decides to submerge it in a large water tank uh, inside some plastic where it's protected to hide it. And he starts to stay up there, and he puts a lock on the door. This prompts Alex to yell up that security and insanity are not the same thing. But I think by this point, David is pretty much already gone. But unbeknownst to the three, you would think they might think of this, but they didn't. There are two very violent hoods tracking this money, implying that Hugo was involved in some pretty unsavory doings. Before we even get into that, you know what's interesting? The actor who played Hugo, I think his name is Keith Allen, he played a drug dealer in Train Spotting. And I don't know if it's intentional or not, but Danny Boyle has indirectly implied that they might be the same character. Uh, because Train Spotting in chronology preceded shallow grave even though it was made afterwards it was i think train spotting was the late 80s and shallow grave is contemporary so he's implied that hugo that drug dealer that he played may that might have been hugo <laughs> and hence this massive weird fortune and these thugs looking after him do one of you guys want to go into how the thugs creatively put people under the uh, under their thumb <laughs> because it's pretty gruesome there is, like, it's, I love the scenes that we do get with them because it almost reminds me of Weeds where, like, you have these characters that are kind of suburban and, like, typical, and then they get involved in heinous things, and then you get these characters and you see what real brutality looks like because they are doing horrendous things to people and they oh, don't give man. a, they clearly do not give a fuck. They are unbothered. Yeah, they seem to take, take pleasure in it. Yeah. I've. I wrote down that they killed one man by basically bashing his head repeatedly into an ATM machine. In in cinematography, from the perspective of inside the machine, that was a cool shot. I loved that shot. Oh man! And there's at the end of it, it's it's basically a, a sort of a clear composite plastic, but it's printed. Clearly, it's supposed to be the ATM, and there's there's blood dripping from it at the end, and the and the man's body has dropped out of the frame. And just for good measure, to Kelly's point, one of the thugs turns around and just, I mean, just bull kicks this guy, presumably in the head or the stomach, just for good measure before they drive away with the cash and or their information that they're looking for. They kill another man by drowning him in a bathtub. And I read an interesting story about that actor who I, his, whose name was Grant Glendening. This was his only acting role. And he responded to an ad in the paper that said, Looking for excellent swimmer to star in film. <laughs> I bet he had no idea that this was what he, he was getting himself into. Yeah. But to be fair, they hold his head under, wa into, uh, under bloody water for, for quite a bit of time. And then they string him up by his feet so that he can't get out of the tub, basically. And they, they leave him there and they kill him. And then... And then there's the freezer scene. Does somebody want... I, this one is very disturbing to me. It's terrifying. Um, we, we basically... We have a scene where um, 
Which, I don't know if you noticed, but the, um, one of the thugs, the curly-haired one, plays James Delos in Westworld. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I did he's not. Also, he was also in, um, the first season of Ozark. Um, oh, okay. Remember. Yeah, yeah. He's really good, yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, I have the note, James Delos is a young thug killing people. Yeah. Uh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but they walk into a warehouse or some kind of industry area and there's a big meat freezer and you when they get up on it you see that there is a person inside and they pull him out and he's shaking and they're clearly trying to get information out of him and he gives it up and then instead of letting him go they put him back in the freezer and his screams are just terrible because he's already in bad shape and now he knows he's not getting out and it's just desperate and awful and he does a really good job yeah, they they show uh, they show the freezer from his perspective. He gives them the information, and then they push him back down, and they pull the freezer shut, and they put sacks of concrete on top so he can't get out. I mean, what kind of sadistic animal? I mean, clearly it's done for that kind of an effect, but I was like, good Lord, just, you know, give the guy a blanket. Yeah, you almost wish you were the bathtub guy now. <laughs> What's interesting is, if I remember it correctly, that was intercut with... Oh, I'm trying to recall because they have been coming in and out of the story and you're trying to wonder how they fit. It's pretty clear that they're after the money. I think that is intercut right after Alex uh, puts her foot over Alex's mouth. Or rather, Juliet puts her foot on Alex's mouth. I think so. And it it's interesting, uh, cool intercutting while they're basically sort of using these weights to trap this guy in a freezer she's using her foot to trap alex at at the at, on the floor it was just a really cool moment for the cinematographer and the and the editor i thought so they the hoods catch up with the tri- with the trio and they break in and they beat alex mercilessly on his shins and boy that oh i right. i'm even i'm shivering thinking about that man it was terrible. Yeah, Alex really sells that. He he you can't, because you don't really see the injury and it's not gory, like there's not much gore in this movie period, but he he just wails. He Yeah, he cries like a like a 5-year-old boy. Yeah. Which as Probably, you would. Right, exactly. <laughs> you if, know? if you had a, you know, a crowbar taken to your shins, I'm pretty sure you'd be crying. I I would be, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and they they bind Juliet and they Put a big cover overhead, and almost this was also quite realistic. If if pathetic, he Alex immediately says it's in the attic. <laughs> like almost immediately, he doesn't even know why they're there. He just he just assumes, and they make it up to the attic. And there's that's a very uh, this is a very tense shot because this is where you realize that the transformation has occurred. I don't know about you guys, but when they head into the attic, I figured okay. They're gonna beat the hell out of David and get away with the money, and then we, and then they're gonna have to figure out how to get it back. That that's how that's where I thought the story was going. Did anybody have thoughts at that point? I had no expectations at this point. I knew they were. <laughs> I knew those. I knew those hoods were dead. Did you? You're yeah. like David. These guys are no match for David. It, it shocks me how. I mean, I guess it shouldn't, but like, um, they make the best use of every single scene in this. Like, the movie moves so quickly. Like, you really think the way they set those guys up that they were going to be around a little bit longer. And like you said, they're not. I mean, it's it's pretty quick and done, you know? Yeah, that dead-on brutality that they had been 
like plugging every step of the way would imply that right. they would have the upper hand against the tree, any one of the trio, two of the trio, or all three of them. And single-handedly, <laughs> David takes the hammer, as foreshadowed when they were shopping in the Scottish Home Depot, and and again, off-screen, less is more, you hear this whack thud. The only one goes up, because presumably they're badass enough to take down you know, one suburban accountant, accountant, for crying out loud. Yeah. And you hear a whack thud, and but you, but I don't remember if he calls up to him if the second thug calls up to him, but it something doesn't sound right or feel right, so he goes up himself, and there's this really spooky from dark to light shot where they show David basically rushing the camera with with the hammer raised, and then it, I don't these were clearly crash test dummies that they threw down through the trapdoor, but I found it shocking, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of terrifying shocking things on film what what was so shocking about that maybe it was just the the outright brutality of it and the character arc that david went through to get to that point right i I felt like it happened so so quick maybe that also and you know with the character arc like it just happened so quick you know yeah yeah he takes care of business man yeah and then he he comes down he looks at the corpses and I actually really wanted to talk to you guys about this. For some reason, he decides to pull down the uh, the collar of a t-shirt on one, and he exposes a tattoo on the lower neck. Do you guys know what that was? I didn't. I don't know why he would look for that, but, I mean, it's clearly meant to imply some kind of gang affiliation or something like that. Because it's a cross, right? I, I think, yeah, I think it was a cross. Uh, Jay, did, did you notice what it was? Yeah, I th- I thought it was a cross as well, and I thought it was this interesting moment again where I got uh, a little ethereal about the whole meaning of the movie, where it was basically a reminder that morality is still present, whether you choose to acknowledge its tenets or not. Morality, as in that particular moment, as espoused by the cross on this on this thug and religion, it didn't have to even be religion. It just is basically. Uh, reminder of personal ethics and how far you've strayed from your straight-laced accountant type who didn't want anything to do with stealing a big suitcase full of cash and let's just give it back to I've just killed two more humans. Like now he's literally, but now he's complicit, way more complicit than the other two even. And uh, it's this stark reminder of the fact that he that he literally is on the downhill slide uh, of morality. Did I read into that too much? And am am I on the outer limits here? I thought it was just ganging. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's gang, dude. It's gang. Chill out, Jay. What's up? The thing that struck me about that scene was like, like you said, um, not only was David's arc like his arc has gone very quickly at this point, but that scene ends very quickly. You almost. You don't have time to have expectations because you don't have time to catch your breath. Like they bust in, they rough up Juliet and um, Alex, and then they're dead. Well, much like we are doing now, talking about how quickly that happened, the, uh, one of the next few shots is Alex outside with Juliet saying, "What the hell? <laughs> what just happened?" And they're outside talking, and Juliet's basically at this point now trying to sway Alex to her side to say, "You've got to." We basically have to find that money and get out of here. Take it for ourselves. Again, one of the comedic lines, always Alex, right? Where he says, 
Did you see what happened to the last two who went up there? They went up there alive and they came down dead. (laughs) 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 Which I thought was pretty brilliant and funny. And uh, she appeals. This is where sort of she starts to flex her, her influence. She appeals to his vanity, of which he has plenty. And she says, well, yeah, he may be... He may have the advantage, but you're smarter than he is. To, to which he, under, he, in character, replies, well, yeah, I've always thought that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and they both go back in, and he's worried about how this will look. To look. In the meantime, David's been snooping around the apartment looking at personal effects, uh, prying into the lives of his, um, of his roommates. Likewise, as I recall, at this point, he's also uh, gone through the entire apartment drilling holes in the ceiling to spy on them, or at least soon hereafter uh, to, to spy on his roommates and, again, look down from above. Yeah. It's always about this position of influence and power. Now, he's in control, and he's in the highest position that any of them can be in, but he's also completely isolated and in the dark. And it's so grungy. Up- him- yeah. It's grungy and gross up there. Like, it is not a place, it's not a place you want to be, is that loft. Yeah, exactly. And the, and basically he has to step on the rapt, rafters and when he's, uh, or rather on the cross beams, and when he's running across them, he almost looks like some odd homunculus. Like he's looks like he's a, like an adapted caveman uh, running back and forth amongst the rooms to look down like an animal uh, at his uh, roommates to see what's happening below as he drilled these holes all through the ceiling, through the plaster. But Alex goes up there and he, he finds the, the case. In the meantime, David comes out and roughly shuts Juliet up by grabbing her face violently. When Alex comes down, he points the drill right at his forehead, and in a very tense moment, he keeps walking, inching towards him, spinning the drill, while Alex tries to walk to uh, dry his hands quickly to not give away that he'd found the cash. And he actually makes contact. I I still, to this point, am not entirely sure what the meaning of him standing his ground was, unless he was trying too hard to imply that he had nothing to hide by letting David drill, put a drill to his forehead. <laughs> I don't know what that meant. My natural inclination would be to run the other way. Neither of them know how to deal with David at this point. And I feel like it's almost like if you were to encounter an animal in the wild, but you give it a moment to see whether or not it's going to be aggressive. I maybe he's just trying to test the waters and see if maybe David's just bluffing. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I hadn't thought of it that way at all. I just immediately thought he'd drill me through the brain. Because <laughs> he leaves a mark. Right. Well, I mean, I'm like presumably Alex has seen David be this meek accountant for many, many years, and yeah. he's probably still thinking of that David. Maybe anticipating that this might be a bluff, or or just a, a temporary thing. Well, he 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 doesn't drill him through the forehead, uh, thankfully. But uh, Alex goes to work uh, the next morning. Juliet stays home because of the bruising on her face that David gave her, and she seduces David, basically. I was thinking at this point, again, to use her influence to have access to the money and to lure him to her side because she realized he's kind of unstoppable and dangerous at this point, and also to calm him down, unless I missed a step in there somewhere. No, I think that was a that was a multi-level approach. Like, 
she would have gone with him if that's how the cards fell, but Juliet's just trying to keep her options open at this point. Yeah, I agree. I, di- I didn't think there was any, I think it was a power play as opposed to any uh, true affection uh, uh, for the friendship and or relationship they once had. I think it was her, it was a very calculated move. Um, again, implicating that uh, or implying that her character arc is taking a sort of a sinister undertone as well. While Alex is at work, the bodies are discovered that unfortunately David had to go and again cut apart and bury quite close to Hugo. And that was a scene that we skipped past, but that was brutal as well. They backlit it in solid red and and fog. And this time, I don't know if you guys noticed that it, this, it's just David and there's no hesitation and he's brutally hacking these bodies to pieces. There's no hesitation. There's no nausea. It's it's clearly I've been here before. I've done this, and I am fully committed. There's no hesitation. Did you guys have that sense? Oh yeah, this is just a this is a job for him now. This is a task that has to be done. Yeah, terrifying. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, red the the red color that they used for that um, backlighting because there were three really bold red. Um, shots in this movie that I liked and there's um, the bloody bathtub we get a scene where like we get that shot of the guy being drowned you know looking up at him in this red water we get um, the red uh, mist as David is burying these bodies and then we also get when he puts his fingers over the light mm-hmm. and his skin turns it red yeah that's true that's a and that's another funny moment because this is empathetic moment where you're like well, on the one hand, you're thinking, what are you doing? You're psycho. And on the other hand, you're thinking, oh, that's what a 12-year-old child does, exploring you know, what their anatomy looks like and, and so forth. Yeah, he basically cups the, looks at his hand and fingers through the covered flashlight and then takes it off again. It also is a metaphor for uh, basically slipping out of the light and then walking back into it and then slipping out again. And I think it ends with the light covered appropriately. So he's buried these bodies, uh, and now Juliet seduces him. But Alex, the bodies are found, and Alex, of all people, is sent to cover the story. And he whips over there on his boss's orders in his Mini Cooper. And I don't know if you guys picked this up. <laughs> it was another funny moment where he's getting out of the car. He he slams his shin into the car door. <laughs> And just has this moment of uh, beyond a beyond a stubbing your toe in pain because we all know what's happening behind you know under his lower jean pants, and he makes it he can't concentrate and he's about to bolt, and he hears overhears that one of the corpses has been skinned. You guys remember this? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, skinned. And it again, it just it it makes it it makes you realize how much worse off David is than we thought he was, <laughs> because they didn't skin Hugo, and for some reason he chose to skin one of the thugs that he put into the because uh, because because he, he had an identifiable tattoo. Yeah, the, well, I was gonna say maybe he was removing the uh, the tattoo off the guy's neck so that they couldn't identify him. And again, stripping morality as you know a symbol away from the situation and refusing to face it at this point. 
And it's such a sad part of the arc of this character because he's the most, in some ways, he's the most moral of the three of them. And clearly he's lost now. He's away. So he races home and he realizes that the alliance has shifted uh, to David and Juliet now, as opposed to Alex and Juliet. He sleeps and he dreams of hiding below floorboards while he's hunted by the police and they basically saw into the floor and he wakes up. And that's a kind of a cool bit of foreshadowing for what happens later in the film. And when he wakes up, he goes to the room and he starts ripping the front pages off of his newspaper, which says, you know, triple murder horror, big bold letters. And this is when the the police show up. What we didn't say from prior was that there was a break-in uh, downstairs and uh, the police come back later, a uh, detective and a constable, and they interview all three of the roommates, the flatmates. The first one they interview is David, who becomes increasingly paranoid because they seem to know that there was a fourth roommate there. And he keeps saying, no, I only live here with two. Who said there was four? And he says that exact phrase like three or four times, which doesn't sound Innocent. good when you're trying to defend yourself. <laughs> Precisely, because he keeps asking who. And I think, I don't know about you guys, let's see what you think. I think at that that's the point at which he thinks Alex turned on me. I think he believes Alex turned oh. him in. Oh. I didn't actually see anything useful, I don't think. And the other three people living in the flat, did they hear anything? There are only two other people in the flat. Who said there were four? We understood there were four people living here. Not always, of course, but now. Four? No, three. Who said there were four? How strange. And how unsatisfactory to have misleading information. Only three people here. You're sure? Yes, absolutely. Who said there were four? Make a note of that, Mitchell. Only three rather than four. Write it down. You can use numbers or words. I have no preference. Which are you using? Both, sir. Excellent. Uh, because later he says, who are you calling? Your friends, the police? Oh, that's right. He does. He keeps saying, your friends? And so I believe, you know, he's thinking it was Alex at that point. They also interviewed Juliet, Alex, who all basically hold their own, but it's a, kind of this cool dynamic. There's a young cop, but, but it's, not, it's not exactly good cop, bad cop. It's young cop, old cop. There's this funny exchange. I remember when they're interviewing David, the older McCall says, uh, oh, that's very distressing to have that kind of bad information. Three, not four. Write it down. Use numbers or letters. I don't care which. <laughs> to which the constable says, didn't say anything, and he says, okay, now which one did you do? And the constable says, both, sir. And the, and the constable and the detective just nods and says, "Excellent." <laughs> <laughs> it was like this funny little cool moment. Like they made the most of those characters, you know. Again, mm -hmm. like James said, good writing here, you know, because these are these could be toss away characters, but they come back, and I think this is why it's so important because you realize these these guys don't miss a trick. If they're going to write down the word for and the number for, they're not going to miss your facial expressions, how you act, uh, ex everything that you say, every claim that you make. And they even test Alex and say, what if I, he was, he, they show him pictures of both the thugs and Hugo and they say, what, look at the top two. And he does. He says, I don't know them. 
He says, what if I told you their car was sitting outside right now? And I can't remember Alex's exact response, but it's something along the lines of, I'd, I'd be quite, uh, I'd think that was quite uh, spectacular. And he says, why is it? And I said, no, I just want to see how you, what you'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a cat and mouse game that the, that the roommates are losing badly. The detective gives him the card, and after they all go to sleep, Alec gets up in the middle of the night to call Detective McCall. What do you guys think he was calling him about? Because he's definitely, it's definitely the McCall that he's that he's calling the the detective. Yeah, I missed that. I missed that. That was who he was calling. I didn't. I didn't know. I I just assumed that he was at that point though. With everything being pretty crazy, I just assumed that he was uh, going to turn in David. Yeah. You mean like basically say uh, that David was the one who killed? I thought so too. David was the one who killed these two men. Yeah. Say nothing about the money and maybe he and Juliet could bolt. I don't know. What did, Kelly, what did you think? Why do you think he was calling? I think that he's not as clever or savvy as you would need to be to pull something off. So yeah, I, he's probably doing the obvious thing and playing the only card that he thought he had. Uh, he's interrupted. David packing. David gets up, takes the money out of the water case, packs, clothes, uh, and starts to leave. Juliet stops him and says, you forgot to wake me. I'm coming with you. Uh, And they both decide to have a little tete-a-tete with Alex. And he pulls on the phone and Alex comes out. And there's this confrontation in the hallway, which I'll let one of you guys describe. But I did want to say that I read that over uh, payment issues, the stunt they couldn't pay the stuntman and the stunt coordinator, so they walked off set. So the three actors, with what little stage combat they had, choreographed and pulled off this entire scene, which is pretty brutal. Yeah, it's a sloppy, unpolished brawl between three people that don't really fight. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and it shows. There's a part where um, David punches Juliet, and it's pretty shocking because he hits her. He hits her pretty hard. And Danny Boyle said about that choice that um, that was a big thing because re- regarding David, it feels like it's just jet black what's left here. She's just as bad as either of them. They've all kind of fallen from grace in a terrible way. Yeah, she bellies up to him and like looks up and and is kind of looking at him with supreme confidence, like, you're not going anywhere. And he, without missing a beat, just sort of, like, rears back and cold cocks her uh, to the jaw, and she falls to the floor, and that catapults Alex onto his back and says, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, Alex actually was going to let him go. This is also an interesting part, uh, to Mondo's point about the friendship that he had with these two earlier. He's kind of come to the point where it's not worth it at this point. I'm just going to let him go. He's not going to fight it. When when she's punched, he's he's had enough and he jumps on and the two struggle and he stabs rather David stabs Alex through the shoulder and pins him to the floor and is just about to kill him when the best use of gore in the film occurs, in my estimation, and a knife appears through David's throat from back to front. And behind him is standing Juliet, who's regained composure and stabbed her roommate. And for a split second, at least I thought, uh, she's going to attend to Alex and maybe do the right thing. But no, she completes the shoe motif. So earlier in the film, Alex kisses her foot and she put, as she puts her shoe on his mouth. And at this point, she says, I'm sorry, I can't take you with me. 
and takes a shoe and wails on the knife and pins him to the kitchen floor. And that is just painful to watch. And he sells it, man. Ewan McGregor is a great actor. <laughs> he is not afraid to cry on screen. <laughs> no. <laughs> and he's great at it. <laughs> yeah. And he gets wailed on multiple times in this movie. And she gets up and runs and he lays there and basically is saying to himself, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. They cut to her at the airport screaming because she's discovered that the case of cash that she's run off with is filled with the newspaper clips that he's pulled into notes and bound together. Did you guys catch that she left him a 50-pound note on the top? I thought that was very sweet of him to do that. Yep, that was perfectly in character. F you, Juliet. I knew you'd do this to me. Little 50 for your trouble. <laughs> so she screams and runs inside basically with the 50 pounds and the, and the dress on her back to presumably catch her flight as a fugitive to Rio. He lies in his own pool of blood looking up at the inspector. There's a great sort of cutaway shot where through the knife and through his body, through his clothes and down through the knife, the blood drips onto the piles of cash which, have, which he has stashed beneath the kitchen floor. Awesome twist. This is one of the coolest endings of a film that I've seen up until then or since then. It's an awesome twist, but also um, I love like when an earlier scene that you normally would just think is like a throwaway scene that has no real purpose or just whatever, just like, okay, we need four or five words to fill this <laughs> dialogue. And then it comes back at the end and it actually has meaning and it has purpose. You know, like he mentions earlier on, why don't we just hang it, put it under the floorboard like normal criminals or something along that those lines. And then that's where he fucking hides it at the end is and the floorboards, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take you one further, James. He, he also has that dream where he is an, a peculiar right. dream, but at the end of the dream, he himself is hiding under the floorboards from the police officers who put the saw through uh, to, to cut him out, and he freaks out, and he wakes up at that point. As, as the whole thing fades, this is my favorite part of the movie probably, as the whole thing fades at the end, they, she's taking her flight, he's bleeding but laughing and alive, presumably to survive. Uh, and they're playing Andy Williams' Happy Heart, which is the perfect song choice to tie tie this awful mess together. And then they crossfade into one of the final shots. Uh, oh, no, wait. that There is a final shot before then where uh, they show, again, the spiral uh, of spinning around David's head completes itself. And you realize that you've been looking at David's, David's corpse. And he is being uh, pushed into a mortuary drawer. And the door shut, the lights turn off. But then they crossfade into the three of them laughing as friends at the doorway after they've pushed Cameron out at the beginning. And then the credits roll. It's What a ride. Yes. Fans of uh, Vince Gilligan's work will love that music choice juxtaposed with the the um, actual events. It was 
it was outstanding. Kelly, thank you so much for recommending this because I, had I had you not mentioned it, I probably would not have revisited it for a while. And it is, man, is it worth the watch. I'm so glad. This was my first time watching it, and I'm really glad that I made the time for it and that I actually got to watch it more than once and really pay attention. It's a, it's a great film. It's an overlooked film. And that's what that's kind of what we like to focus on on these shows. What was inter- I, there were some things that I'd like to sort of bring up about the production, but I uh, was wondering if you guys had any sort of overall thoughts about the film that you'd like to share in terms of character arc or themes or just specific moments or act uh, actors or direction moments that you'd like to to bring up. Feel free. Um. I did think that the painting that they feature in the living room is really interesting. That's the one that Juliet talks to Hugo about, where it's like this kind of hulking single person, and um, but then there's a lighter one behind it, almost like a like a shadow self or a mirror image or something like that. Which I don't know if that was intentional, but I thought like kind of the hidden potential in people to do good or terrible things. I thought that that made that interesting. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look. I didn't notice that. Is it like a reflect? Is is it like a, a figure looking at his or her reflection? Um, it's the one of just it's a single person, and um, then there's there's kind of like almost not really a shadow, but there's a second figure that looks very similar. It's just very light, and um, it's easy to miss if you're not actually staring at the painting. Um, I I didn't catch it until actually I, the third time I watched the movie is when I noticed it. Oh, but, okay. Um, yeah. Did you guys catch that? No, nope. I did not. <laughs> nice eye, Kelly. Yeah. Well done. Um, I also had a genuine I had a question. Obviously, um, David is the one who is tasked with dismembering the corpse, and we see, have talked about how this leads to his downfall and a pretty unfortunate arc for him. But um, how do you think that Juliet and Alex would have reacted if they had been the ones to draw the short straw, and how do you think it might have impacted the trajectory from that point forward? Uh, yeah, that I think it would have been a whole different movie. I'm very curious about what Alex specifically would have done because he's so much, so much kind of not BS, but like he's all jokes and d- yeah. not taking things seriously. And I just I wonder how he might have acted if he'd had to do something that terrible. I would have said that Alex probably would have been all talk until the big moment, and then he, much like the other two, would have said, "I can't go through with it." And Alex. Unlike the other two, I believe probably would not have gone through and said, "Okay, fine, we're taken back, and we'll call the we'll call the cops." Like I don't David, know. Like that's David my that's a... my feeling. I think he's a big coward. I think I think I'll, on the other hand, I think Alex would have probably done it and probably been okay with it, uh, or maybe have had a similar arc to uh, to David. Uh, I think throughout the film. Alex is the only one who was consistently honest with everybody. Like he was a shit. He knew he was a shit and he didn't hide it. Um, but when, but in that scene where they're deciding who's going to dismember the body, he says, look, if I pick the short straw, I'll do it. You know, he's, he's just intri- He just wants it to be fair and honest, which I think that just ties to his character. Like he's like, if you would have gotten it, I think you would have done it. And with the way the events of this, this scenario went through, I think he probably would have had a similar arc to David. Maybe he wouldn't have been as good as David, <laughs> but he probably would have gotten as broken as he did. What do you think, James? Yeah, uh, as far as 
Yeah, I, I feel like Alex wouldn't have, I mean, he, he wouldn't have done it. I think he's a lot of talk, you know, so I don't think he would have uh, done it. He probably would have found a reason or, you know, been like, oh, no, maybe you guys are right. Or, you know, I, I don't think he would have went through with it at all. Um, that would have been a completely different movie. That, that That's interesting. I didn't even consider that. So um, that's, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Cool question, Kelly. Very cool question. Yeah, and as far as Juliet's, I, your guess is as good as mine. I was I, honestly I, surprised that they didn't kind of push her to do it because she is a doctor. I don't, yeah. She's probably not necessarily right. sawing people's hands off, but like she's certainly more used to that kind of thing than any of them. She's, I, I feel like she's she, trained in anatomy. She's got to know the parts. But she was also the most powerful of the three of them. So she she was able to say, no, I'm not going to do it. And they were like, okay. <laughs> right. One of I, us I will like have she, to. I feel like she would have immediately tried to position herself to get one of them to do it for mm-hmm. her. You know? Yeah, which is kind of what wound up happening in its own way, right? It, or at least it worked out that way. Well, in our in our case, I think the best scenario is what we got to see because I think they wrote it so that in the beginning, David's the one that the general viewer is attaching themselves to, like, oh, I, I would be the straight man in this scenario. I wouldn't want to be a criminal and do you know, I'd I'd try to do the right thing, and then that person gets put in. <laughs> A shitty situation where it's like oh god well and then you see how that affects them and then you start to be like well i don't know if i don't know how i would be in that situation so you know you just lose it and and that's what makes it for a great ride if you ended up if you ended up getting to know these characters as the as they were and then saw them do the terrible things they did you know anyone other than david you'd probably be like well that makes sense <laughs> yeah well, you're right. It's it, there's this really in my take on the character arcs was Alex goes from this amoral, flippant a hole to somewhat protective, uh, not only of his own interests but also Juliet's and to some extent David's, and then at the end, kind of defensive, and uh, basically just gives gives it over, gives up. Uh, David is the moral center at the beginning becomes unhinged and basically plagued by guilt to the point of insanity and then at the end downright bloodthirsty and Juliet interestingly on the fence at the beginning then becomes completely slowly but surely becomes completely self-absorbed and so it's really kind of interesting and also terrifying the character tracks that each of them takes and it's what makes this thing not only such a great thriller but also a uh, uh, approaching some kind of a greek tragedy in modern times with the with the danny boyle twist <laughs> any other final thoughts on the film I, I had an editing thought um i mean and you guys may not notice it but because i do a little bit of editing i i definitely noticed it um there's something called a j cut and maybe we even discussed this before i don't remember um but it's where the audio starts before the transition before the actual cut the audio starts a lot of times it's just a couple frames ahead of time. Um, in this case, they they did it Hugo. pretty heavily. When right. she was talking to Hugo, I noticed that big time. I was like, what the yep. hell is happening? And then I was like, oh, shit. They, it, we're watching yep. like two scenes at once kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's used a lot of times because um, the brain, it's, it's the brain's a weird thing. Like with how we put things together, uh, even with cuts, the, if you pay attention to the way something is cut, you can see the wide shot. And then when you jump into the close up, you're just, your brain is already filling in the other details. Like in your head, it's still, 
it's it already knows what you know what else has been going on so you still assume those characters are there even if they're not even on set being filmed at that time you know the j cut does the same thing it just it what it does is it it sets your brain up for the next image to pop in and it's not such a surprise to the brain and it just makes the story flow together so but they definitely relied upon that pretty heavily at different points like like you said the the sequence with hugo um yeah there were a couple different times and then um there's just one piece of trivia that i thought was kind of funny um let's see uh, danny boyle has stated that of the films he has directed this is his father's favorite and that whenever a new film directed by Boyle Jr. is released, including Slumdog Millionaire, which won the Academy Award both for Best Feature and Best Director, um, he asked his father's opinion. His father's review is always the same. It was good, but not as good as Shallow Grave. <laughs> I think that is hilarious considering that's his, you know, it's his debut feature. And obviously it's you know significantly harder to do a debut feature and then on the budget was pretty damn low and his dad's just like well that was a good effort but not as good as your first one <laughs> yeah the, the Boyle made more with less i right. would have to agree with his dad uh aside from perhaps my my contender would be 28 days later so good it's which so good. yeah we'll have to cover at some point because i that's that's in a world unto itself but so is this film my final thoughts on it were more of like this is this had a it has a wide angle view of of the themes a, a sort of a more of a mid ground and also close up. My wide angle is that the, it's a movie about power influence and their inevitable inevitable conflict with morality uh, when you're put when normal mere humans are thrust into a situation like these characters are and then. My midground was truly psychological and triangular with the Freudian id ego superego battling it out and the shifting dynamics of the two points of a tri- triangle against the third. And then the, my sort of more finely tuned take on it was it's, it just is a finely tuned thriller with shifting alliances uh, and this basically a logarithmic descent into chaos and stellar acting and cinematography and direction. And I have to, again, thank Kelly for bringing it to our attention because this was a really cool movie. I'm so glad you guys enjoyed it. I'm so happy that I could have someone to talk to about it. So, uh, Mondo, where can folks reach you if they want to talk more uh, about movies? I'm pretty much uh, uh, on Twitter as Blink Bomber, and uh, you can find me pretty much anywhere else with that handle. So uh, reach out, uh, ask me why i don't or do like certain movies or tell me why i'm wrong i don't i don't mind i'll i'll tell you you're wrong too because uh i like a lot of stuff and i don't like a lot of stuff and it happens Mondo's a lot of fun to talk to on twitter with all kinds of opinions about all kinds of movies not just horror and thriller films so i i enjoy chatting with you on there what about you james uh i'm on twitter at james d 7004 and uh yeah you know um tweet at me and we'll talk movies Movies and the worst bad jokes, which are the best. Yes, yes. I just I just put one up that was uh oh um Kelly, you do yours and then I'll tell you my bad joke. Um you can find me at Quadrophenniac on Twitter and I will similarly be happy to discuss movies with people. And uh you can find me at Finn three one three and I would be happy to talk to you about this podcast or thriller movies or medicine or anything that strikes your fancy. You guys, thank you. Kelly, thank you so much for bringing yes, this movie you. to us. Yeah. And 
we will look forward to seeing you all on the next episode of Clock Strikes Midnight. Listen for the bells. Thank you for listening to Clock Strikes Midnight. For more information or to suggest topics, find me on Twitter at Finn313. The show's music was written by Kevin McLeod and can be found on Incompetech.com. So until next time, friends, may every tick of the clock bring you love, health, and good fortune. And remember, at two in the morning, the wind comes back for more leaves.